guys. Hello. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Hola. Bienvenido. Hola. Bienvenidos <laughs> al Katie Halper Show. Hi, I'm Katie Halper. Yeah, and this is Gabe Pacheco. It's so nice to see you, Gabe. Oh, it's so great to be back here in the hot seat. In the hot seat. And uh, listeners, in case you don't know, you could have just like stumbled across the show. We are the Katie Halper Show. We are a show that you can hear every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's 99.5 FM. WBAI.org. You can find the Katie Halper Show on iTunes. And you know what you should do while you're there? You just do a little R&R, a little rate and review. Drop we us some it. stars. We love it. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on Patreon. The great thing about Patreon is that you get bonus content. You get extra interviews. You get extended interviews. You get a little behind the scenes. And to do that, you just go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You can find us on Twitter using the hashtag KTHelpShow. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S-H-O-W. You can find me at KTHelps, letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. And you can find Gabe at Gabe underscore Pacheco. That's right. That's right. Um, we want listeners to, to know about something really exciting that's happening. The people have spoken. They keep asking us when the, lex, the next live taping is. And we finally, we're making it happen. June 30th, that's a Saturday, prime real estate, guys. Saturday, June 30th at 7 p.m., we are doing a live taping at Caveat, which is in Manhattan, 21 Clinton Street. Guess who our special guest is going to be? Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank, guys. People love Thomas Frank. He's great. He wrote Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. Great book. He also wrote um, What's the Matter with Kansas. And he now has a new book of essays called Rendezvous with Oblivion. And it's a collection of his his writings. He also writes for places like The Guardian, Harper's. And, you know, he was actually the founder of um, The Baffler magazine. What? Yeah, it's true. So... Take out your date book, jot down the Katie Halper Show Live with Gabe Pacheco and special guest Thomas Frank. Go to caveat.nyc. Just find that ticket, that golden goose of a ticket for the Katie Halper Show. And guys, we got you a promo code. Ready for this? If you want discounted tickets, all you have to do is right in the promo, K Halper Insider. It's a little bit suggestive, but yeah, Caveat is a great space. They have really cool shows there. Have you been there? It's a you, very, very sexy venue. It is, right? It's a, it's a, feels like you're in a subterranean beer hall speakeasy. Yeah, it's very speakeasy-ish. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's spacious uh, with big, long tables, and there's a, a great selection of wine, liquor, and beer, and uh, uh, like uh, just awesome equipment. You yeah. know, it's it feels like they they really put a lot of attention into making sure that uh, you can hear the people and see the people on the stage. Yeah, and they also have really cool shows. Like the themes of the shows are really cool. Yeah, yeah. There was um, a great a feminist uh, sketch and variety uh, show called The Box, uh, and I ended up seeing it seeing that show there. That was great. Uh, also, the uh, DAF. I don't know if I can say it. Diverse as. Fuck uh, Festival was also there at Caveat. So they put on a lot of interesting events. Yeah, and a lot of science events too. Yeah, it's like they want they want you to learn mm-hmm. with the entertainment. Exactly. So, of course, I mean, what a perfect So for all our venue. highbrow listeners out there. Exactly, yeah. Looking to keep your, uh, your neural pathways open. 
keep all your neurons stimulated. Which is probably one of the reasons you listen to the Katie Halper show, let's be honest. Yeah. On today's show, we are really excited to be playing an interview with a very, very important figure. Her name is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She is running for Congress. She is a Bronx native. She is a progressive. She's a 28-year-old, and she's a Latina candidate running for Congress in Queens on a platform that's really progressive and includes the abolition of ICE. Wait, so this is checking all the boxes all for the me. All the boxes. You're, I mean, it's a it's a woman. It's which a is, woman. Boom. It's a POC. It's a, a person of color. Mm-hmm. It's a Latina, Latinx. Mm-hmm. And you're telling me that she has a really progressive platform. Yeah. And, uh, and she's young, which means that she would be able to continue yeah. with her work for decades to come. Right. Wow. So this is all the things that sort of, you know, after the last election, the uh, Democratic Party was kind of encouraged to uh, to sort of seek out. Right. She's almost like a unicorn. Mm-hmm. You know, all these Unicornia. great. She, she, yeah. Unicornio, She's checking yeah. all the boxes. Checking all the boxes. Yeah. Wow. So and her policy is actually good, though, right? So she must be endorsed right now by the entire Democratic Party apparatus. Right. The in establishment New York State. that knows that they need new blood. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Stand by, people. Just just you wait. Just you wait and see. We'll see who is actually endorsing her. But spoiler alert, she may not be getting all the endorsements from all the high up Dems that you would think she should get. Maybe yeah. you knew she wouldn't get it because, you know, the Dems are are hopeless and refuse to learn from their mistakes and um, are really insisting that this old straight white dude who's not as progressive keeps his seat that he was appointed, basically. This guy's like old school, old boys network. Who's that? Joe Crowley, the congressman she's seeking to, she's challenging. This is a primary This challenge. is a primary yeah. and Joe Crowley is is the uh, the old ghoul the who's old still ghoul, at the top. Yeah, exactly. Who's like a, the the Democrats are are uh, promoting the grandfather from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Just Basically. some some mummified uh, old man just trying to trying to suck at some new person's blood for life. Yeah, he's living off of that um, and bringing everyone else down with him. So you know, surprisingly enough, though, Ocasio, she's young, she's energetic, she's from the Bronx, she's um, under thirty. She's great. She's got great politics, great progressive platforms. And yet the same, uh, the very same Democratic Party establishment that was so excited about Hillary Clinton because she's a woman. Um, some of them, like Christian Gillibrand, decided not to support her. Um, Kristen Gillibrand, of course, Kirsten Gillibrand, of course, is the senator from New York. And um it's funny because she's not endorsing or supporting Ocasio, nor is she supporting or endorsing Cynthia Nixon, who's a woman, also a lesbian. So just another example of people being totally okay with a straight white male. Also, Cynthia Nixon wants to uh, help us with our MTA problems. Oh, yeah. yeah. So she'd be great for New York City. Yeah. Yeah. She also wants to, she got into some trouble for saying that like legalizing marijuana would be a form of reparation, but it's kind of true. Yeah. Like it just you can't would, it wouldn't be explicit, but right. it would be a byproduct of it would be that it would help out so many people of color. Right. I mean, you can't acknowledge how much the drug wars, the war on drugs hurts, disproportionately hurts black people. That's right. You know, anyway, whatever. Um, but uh, unlike, uh, Cuomo, she does not identify as a Jewish black person. Did you see this thing that Cuomo, he's like, as a New Yorker, I'm a Jew. I'm a woman. As a New Yorker, I am a Muslim. 
As a New Yorker, I am Jewish. As a New Yorker, I am black. I am gay. I'm a, I'm a Syrian hot dog cart <laughs> yeah. operator. I am disabled. Actually, it's problematic. Lebanese you left some people out. Yeah. Ferryman. Ferryman. I'm a, <laughs> a Yemeni bodega uh, operator. Yes. I am a woman seeking to control her health. I am an Egyptian stevedore. Stevedore. I like that. Uh, Kirsten, get woke. Okay. Endorse Cindy Nixon instead of Cuomo and endorse Ocasio instead of uh, Crowley. And, you know, this is really cold because uh, Kirsten, not only did she endorse Crowley, the incumbent, she didn't even tell Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez first. That's just cold. And... Ocasio and you know they're they're on a te- they're on a text thread, a group text oh my together. God. Yeah, or like a, a Slack or something, or yeah. yeah, group text. Yeah, women in politics. Well, listen to this. A secret this is, Facebook group. This is what this is what makes it so so um, foolish. The foolery. She asked Ocasio to speak in favor of her something called the Small Business Support Act a few years ago, and she named her in a press release. So Ocasio tweeted that out. She tweeted out the like a link to the press release. The press release names Ocasio. Her her desire to abolish ICE is actually a kind of uh, important and sad segue because two things that we want to talk about that happened recently, two suicides that we want to talk about today on this show. One is Marco Antonio Munoz, Honduran man who killed himself in a Texas jail last month in May, after U.S. authorities forcibly separated him from his wife and child. The one that you, of course, have heard about, Anthony Bourdain, was a a celebrity chef, an author, a travel documentarian, television personality, best known for uh, No Reservations and Parts Unknown. And he was 61. What does that have to do with ICE? Well, it turns out Anthony Bourdain, the chef who died by suicide on June 8th, was a major advocate for undocumented workers immigrants, uh, documented workers, basically for all people. Like he was a total universal mensch. He was a friend of the working man. A friend of the working man, a friend of the working woman. Here's just an example of some of the really great things he did for humanity. Uh, He attacked Henry Kissinger. From his 2001 book, A Cook's Tour, he wrote, once you've been to Cambodia, you'll never stop wanting to beat Henry Kissinger to death with your bare hands. You will never again be able to open a newspaper and read about the, that treacherous, prevaricating, murderous scumbag sitting down for a nice chat with Charlie Rose or attending some black tie affair for a new glossy magazine without ch- choking. Witness what Henry did in Cambodia, the fruits of his genius for statesmanship, and you will never understand why he's not sitting in the dock at The Hague next to Milosevic. Yeah, I mean, he is. Uh, he created the conditions that allowed for Pol Pot and the Camer Rouge to rise up in the killing fields. Right. Uh, it, so, it, but, so that was interesting during the election when, uh, when everyone's favorite candidate. Who, didn't, Clinton, who, did, yeah. who won the popular vote right. was, uh, said that yeah she really looked up to Henry Kissinger. Yeah, she was really glad that he that he praised her. So this is one one area where she and uh, Bourdain, you know, picked different right. roads. Yeah, we're on different at teams. the fork. Yeah, L- picked up different forks. Yeah, you guys, I wish you could see the pain on Gabe's face as I made that pun. I was very happy about it, and and as happy as I was, Gabe was as sad. Um, Here's what he said about immigration. Despite our ridiculously hypocritical attitudes towards immigration, we demand that Mexicans cook a large percentage of the food we eat, grow the ingredients we need to make that food, clean our houses, mow our lawns, wash our dishes, look after our children. Any chef will tell you our entire service economy, the restaurant business as we know it, 
in most American cities would collapse overnight without Mexican workers. Some of some, of course, like to claim that Mexicans are stealing American jobs. But in two decades as a chef and employer, I never had one American kid walk in my door and apply for a dishwashing job, a porter's position, or even a job as prep cook. Mexicans do much of the work in this country that Americans probably simply won't do. He wrote that on his Tumblr. Oh, man. I mean, if you walk around and in New York City, it's it's so evident. If you walk into any single restaurant in the back of the back of the restaurant is always Mexicans. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, you know, you go, go eat sushi, right? Mm-hmm. The, the 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 sushi chef, the guy making the rolls. Mm-hmm. He just got here, mm-hmm. you know, straight straight from Mexico. Octavio. Just make, making some California rolls for you. Yeah. Uh, I was sitting with uh, Carlos Delgado, very funny performer, stand up. And uh, we were talking about, we, were, we thought about a sketch, make a sketch like an Iron Chef. Mm-hmm. And you've got like three chefs who've all studied all over the world. And then one Mexican short order cook who's just learned everything right. in the Lower East Side. Like he's he's learned how to make Chinese food, learned how to make Italian food. He's like, whatever. Okay. Right. And he can whip it all up. Honestly, I feel like Mexico is sending its uh, best and brightest here to sort of uh, 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 catalog all of the cuisines from around the world. Oh, I like it. They're like the um, the Arabs during the uh, Dark Ages, the European Dark Ages, who saved all those um, like Aristotle texts that were like ruined or getting yeah. thrown out by the Europeans because they were so backwards. That's right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I knew you were going to make that comparison. I knew that was the analogy you were trying to make. That's where I was headed. That's where you're headed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he also said uh, during the 2016 presidential campaign season, he slammed Trump's promises to deport immigrants in the U.S. illegally and build a wall along the Mexican border. And he said uh, in an interview with Sirius XM Radio, he said, if Trump deports 11 million people or whatever he's talking about right now, every restaurant in America would shut down. Uh, Burdain on Palestinians. Because, you know... A lot of people are, you know, it's not, I think any liberal is like, knows that Trump is a total racist, right? And knows that his plan about the wall and immigration, those are absurd, right? But there's like a major loophole for lots of progressives. It's like, there's actually a term for it. It's called progressive except on Palestine, right? People you mean are, they love progressives that love ethnic cleansing and want yeah. uh, Palestinians to go the way of the Native Americans yeah, in the exactly, U.S.? Exactly. They want to. They want the strip to be gentrified. Yeah, exactly. They have a niche market when it comes to like uh, ethnic cleansing. They're not into it usually, but they have a very uh, niche market in which they like it to occur, and that is in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We know lots of people like that. Hey, let's just bring it back to Hillary Clinton. Why is it called a conflict? Why isn't it just called the gentrification and and genocide of Palestine? It's so people love being against being against gentrification, which they should be, although it's a little bit misrepresented often. But yeah, we should just call the Israeli-Palestinian conflict gentrification. I think you're right. That's a good idea. Or just ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. Sure. Whatever you want to call it. You know, that's what it is. Yeah, Yeah, it is. So uh, a lot of people aren't great on that issue. Like Uh, who? Well, I mean, everyone, like anyone who's APAC, um, basically anyone who's not Keith Ellison or Bernie Sanders or um, Barbara Lee, basically like every politician except for those politicians. I'm sure I'm leaving out a few lower level, like definitely in the Senate, the only ones I can think of who are good are, is anyone besides Sanders good on this? 
I don't think a single other senator is. Hey, listeners, if you can think of any politicians that any are senators pro or above, uh, yeah. senators or above that are pro uh, uh, Palestine or good on good, good on, on the Palestine. issue of the conflict, right. yeah, just tweet. tweet or good out. on pa- on ethnic cleansing when it comes to Palestinians. <laughs> Who are like, yo, I'm all good now with that. Yeah, exactly. I'm done, done with it. Had enough. S- but Bourdain actually was was outspoken on that issue too. And Juan Cole, who is, has a blog called Informed Comment, he he wrote a piece and he called Bourdain the only major American celebrity who succeeded in depicting publicly the Palestinians as rational, caring human beings rather than as rationally angry inciters to violence. When the Israeli army hit Palestinian children on a beach in Gaza in 2014, uh, Bourdain tweeted... Quote, maybe it's the fact that I walked on that beach and have a small child that makes this photo so devastating. Hashtag Gaza, Gaza, end quote. And he actually won a Muslim Public Affairs Council award for featuring an episode of Parts Unknown on Palestinian cuisine. The Sultan family own a small farm in the Badi Sela area of the eastern Gaza Strip. Um Sultan and her husband are unusual in that they cook together. This is not typical in this part of the world or in this culture. They use their own fresh-killed chickens to make the Gazan classic, makluba, a traditional Palestinian dish comprised of layers of fried eggplant, tomato, potatoes, caramelized onions, and chicken, sautéed, then simmered in a broth with nutmeg, cinnamon, cardamom, and rice. It's a big family. Children, grandchildren, all living under the same roof. And it can get chaotic. So let's talk about food and eat food, because it's just sitting here. Tell yeah, me, yeah, yeah. Sure, what, sure, sure. what do we have here? Okay, so this is called ma'luba, or makluba. Traditional name with lamb, in this case, chicken. They're very concerned that we're being very rude and we're not. <laughs> we're not allowing, no, the others to eat. He's saying, how can you be eating and you're letting everybody stop? Wow. This is what he said during his award speech. I'm very, very honored for this award, the Impact Voices of Courage and Conscience Media Award. There was, however, very little courage, and one would hope an ordinary amount of conscience at work in producing our Israel-Palestine episode of Parts Unknown. I was enormously grateful for the response from Palestinians in particular, for doing what seemed to me an ordinary thing, something we do all the time, show regular people doing everyday things, cooking and enjoying meals, playing with their children, talking about their lives, their hopes and dreams. It is a measure, I guess, of how twisted and shallow our depiction of a people is, that these images come as a shock to so many. The world has visited many terrible things on the Palestinian people, none more shameful than robbing them of their basic humanity. People are not statistics. That is all we attempted to show. A small, pathetically small step towards understanding. To be recognized in this way means a lot to me and to all of us who worked on the show. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thanks. He's pretty moving. He was also great when it came to Ted Cruz. He tweeted uh, recently, actually, in 2017, September. He tweeted, I'm doing a Kickstarter to buy Ted Cruz a fleshlight. What's a fleshlight? That's a kind of sex toy, right? It's like a fake vagina, I believe. Oh, nice. Yeah. 
Did you didn't know that? I knew that. You didn't. Wow. Yeah. Look at that. We're so we're so balanced, fair and balanced on the Katie Albert show. Did he respond? Did Ted respond? I, I, I pro- I'm going to guess no, but I'll look into it. It got a lot of likes. It got seven seventy thousand likes. I guess likes. he has that je ne sais quoi that I need a flashlight. Je ne sais quoi. Anyway, I mean, f- I feel bad for the. I would pay. I would donate to that Kickstarter just to spare a real life woman from having to have sex with Ted Cruz. Yeah. Ugh. So gross. Um, or man, I shouldn't be heteronormative. I don't want anyone. Obviously, it should only be consensual. But even consensual sex with Ted Cruz must feel not that. Okay. It must be a traumatizing experience. Yeah. Maybe it's a... I, I, I bet some people have a Ted Cruz... Uh, a kink? Kink, yeah. Like someone in their in their Tinder profile is looking for that guy that looks kind of like Ted Cruz. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, what did what did Anthony, Tony from the Trump versus Bernie show that James Adomian does? He said something about how he looks like a, a fetus who is like left in a, in a dumpster fire or something and raised itself... Lying Ted. This guy is so slick. He's like a bottle of Astroglide that's like on its side. Very greasy, very greasy. I mean, Ted Cruz is like a fetus that raised itself in a dumpster feral, you know? That's what it looks like. Remember he was talking during one of the Republican debates and he like, there was a thing like came up onto his lip. It was so gross. He just had it, all of a sudden he had a chunk of something on his lip. Yeah, it was, it was so uh, gross. It was like, it was like a deposit, some sort of, um, Something that, oh, God. Debris that got stuck and got coughed up. Yes. So gross. Ugh. Anyway, good old Ted. And on to much uh, more attractive people, Bourdain's girlfriend was Asia Argento, Asia Argento. My favorite movies, too. She's in Land of the Dead. Uh, George Romero came back for his fourth installment, Land of the Dead, uh, after decades of not putting out oh. uh, zombie films. And she she's in that. It's, good for it's him. great. Good for her. Yeah. Her father is its legendary Italian director, Dario Argento. And she was one of the early um, accusers to go to name Harvey Weinstein. And so Bourdain also, of course, supported her, his girlfriend, his partner's uh, crusade against Weinstein. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Yeah. But um, so I feel really bad for her. She seems like an amazing person. And she's Italian. And the, I guess the guilt, the like victim blaming in Italy is so bad that she fled Italy for Germany. <laughs> that's a, that's a nice, <laughs> it's an interesting to seek refuge in Germany. I'm being ridiculous. It's, it's been a place where people seek refuge for a while now. Yeah. There's a lot of Syrian refugees there. Yeah. Right. Um, they love it. They, they love it. That's where they want to get. They start off in Bulgaria and they're like, nah. Hamburg is where it's at. Yeah. Frankfurt is where mm-hmm. it's at. Any other food? Munich. Munich, yeah. Get some Bavarian cream pies. Hey, that's what you got to make those illegal. That's what brings the immigrants, the illegals in. Yeah, great pastries. They're crossing the border for the pastries, yeah. She moved to Berlin. She said, Italy is far behind the rest of the world in its view of women. And she left to escape the climate of tension and victim blaming. And um, she said, the thing with being a victim is I feel responsible because if I were a strong woman, I would have kicked him in the balls and run away, but I didn't. And I, and so I felt responsible. She said that to, Roman Fa- to Ronan Farrow in an interview that they did before she had to leave. Ugh, there was like disgusting responses to it. Uh, this Libero, a conservative publication in Italy, ran an opinion piece by someone where they it said, first they give it away, then they whine and pretend to repent. Surrendering to a boss's advances to make a career. To make a career is pr- prostitution, not rape. 
She sued for defamation over that, by the way. Good for her. Right? Then this other guy, this art critic and like right-wing politician in Italy said, I feel that he was raped by her and that she was the dominant one. Look for the picture of Argento and Weinstein standing next to each other and, and, and think about that that thesis that she raped him. Um, by the way, little side note, her name is is technically Aria because Italy wouldn't let her parents put Asia on the birth certificate or whatever, or register that name. Interesting. But it's been Asia since then, yeah. I mean, not to sound corny, much like during his life, he taught us a lot. Even his suicide taught us a lot. Anthony Bourdain, because his life really shed light on so many issues, uh, one of them being immigration. And one of the things that we definitely want to talk about, and that I'm sure, ironically, I don't know the guy Bourdain, but I feel like he's probably upset that his suicide has overshadowed this other suicide. A Honduran man who killed himself in a Texas jail last month in May, after U.S. authorities forcibly separated him from his wife and child. And that drove him to kill himself. Yep. Marco Antonio Munoz fled Honduras with his wife, Orlando de Munoz, and their three-year-old son after her brother slang left the family fearing for their lives. And Gabe, you actually had a, a Facebook post about this. You made a really good point about how all these people were upset, as they should be, about Bourdain's suicide. But there was another suicide that had happened that was really the result of, like, U.S. policies. Right. So there's, you know, I think I think uh, when someone commits suicide uh, individually, uh, we shed a tear and we think it's very tragic, especially when they come when they're wealthy or privileged or in this sort of celebrities. And it totally, you know, suicide affects all of us. But uh, then there's this out outpouring of, hey, if you feel sad, call these numbers and everyone thinks they're doing a great job by put, posting suicide hotlines on Facebook or saying, hey, uh, reach out to me if you feel sad. We're, you know, we are enacting as a collective these policies that are pushing people to the brink of suicide and we're creating conditions that are traumatic, uh, that, that unlivable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's a place where we could focus our energies as well. There was no reason for this uh, immigrant with his family uh, to be pushed to a, a conditions where he would think that there was no way out. There were very clear policy decisions that made his life so unlivable. They get to the border and uh, they are going to ask for asylum. In, at the border, he's with his wife and his kids, and the policy now is that the U.S. government or Department of Homeland Security and ICE aren't even taking into consideration the idea that someone could legitimately be asking for asylum. They're immediately arresting people and detaining them. And not only that, but they separate the whole family. So whereas in the past, you would be processed with uh, everyone else. His suicide it was first reported by the Post on Saturday, the Washington Post. It raised new concerns about the psychological strain endured by migrant families who crossed the border illegally and faced separation once in government custody. So exactly like you were saying, this often happens because people are not just like seeking an upgrade. They just want to live. Like the thing that they're looking for that makes them flee where they are is the desire to be alive. Better better take a trip, a one-way ticket Yeah. to the U.S. Yeah. by foot. Yeah, so they they tried to, they arrived, they got here, and then thanks to the little evil troll known as Jeff Sessions, Jeff Beauregard Sessions, which is just like, in case you didn't know he was racist, his middle name is Beauregard. He is enforcing this zero tolerance policy 
no humanitarian concern at all. And apparently they spent several days in a safe house on the Mexican side of the border before crossing the Rio Grande into the United States. The safe house was crowded. The family only got food once or twice a day. Jesus. So then they entered the U.S. illegally, obviously. Um, well, because there is a legal, legal way to right. do it. I know, I know. It's not like they're like, eh, we're going to, we feel like we're up for challenge. We don't want to do it the legal way. We're going to, let's, let's uh, make it, let's turn this into an adventure. No, it's the reason that they had to do it illegally was because the U.S. supported in large part. The reason is in large part because the U.S. supported a, uh, enabled a, a coup in Honduras that turned Honduras into the murder capital of the world. So you're welcome. You're welcome. They made you famous, Honduras. Booming, booming femicide industry. Did great things for femicide. After Border Patrol agents separated him from his family, he began shouting and shaking the chain link fencing of his holding pen. So they drove him 40 miles to the Star County Jail in Rio Grande City, Texas, where he struggled with guards and was placed in an isolation cell. And then they found him dead on the floor of his padded cell the following morning, with blood pooled near his mouth and a shirt twisted around his neck. He tied the garment to a drainage gate in the center of the floor and hung it around his neck, then rolled himself over several times to tighten it, according to incident reports filed by sheriff's deputies. Also, uh, who so knows if he killed awful. himself? He may yeah, have been that's murdered. Totally true. Uh, uh-huh. I, I don't believe anybody uh, because the, who's... There's no accountability right. in these jails. Oh, wow. You're jails. just saying you don't believe there's transparency in jail? I mean, yeah. With a suicide, nobody gets fired. Nobody gets arrested. Uh, nobody gets prosecuted. Right. Whereas if they beat him to death, uh, that which is completely possible. I'm yeah. not saying they did, but... Right. But Either way, they what, probably what can we did. rest assured about <laughs> is that it's they will not be punished for what they did. Like, there may be some slaps on the wrist. Maybe. Not as many. Maybe. There yeah. may not be a... Here's what we can be sure about. The slaps on the wrist will be lighter if they happen at all, if he commits suicide, than if they actually, like, killed him. That's for sure, like what you said. But what's so great about this country is that either of those things could happen without any punishment. Like we've seen in a, you know what the great thing about the United States is? You don't have to be an undocumented person for your death to be totally ignored by the criminal justice system. Just look at that black prisoner in Florida who was allowed to be boiled to death in a shower Nothing happened to any of his killers. So it's great that whether or not you're documented or undocumented, you're a murderer at the hands of either depraved indifference or um, actual like homicide through boiling will be totally ignored by the criminal justice system. And uh, neither of those things will get you fired. That's the, that's the thing. That's so disgusting. I still can't believe that story. So that's a horrible story, but also it's a very, and it's a sad segue, but it's a perfect segue to my interview with um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, because we talk precisely about the, why it is she wants to abolish ICE. So just going to play this interview with uh, Alexandria. Really excited to be talking to my guest today. She's an activist, organizer, educator, and she's also running for Congress in the Democratic primary in New York's 14th district. So welcome, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. Thanks for coming on. Of course, of course. Can you tell us a little bit about how your kind of personal biography informed your politics and your decision to run? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different threads here. Um, You know, first things first, I was born in the Bronx um, to two really working class parents 
My dad was born and raised in the South Bronx while the Bronx was burning. Um, so he kind of was raised in this period when all of these buildings were coming down in the Bronx when landlords were kind of committing arson to their own buildings with families inside because the insurance payouts were higher than the rents. Um, and, you know, from a young age, he decided that he wanted to put those buildings back up. So he became an architect. Um, my mom was born in Puerto Rico. She was born uh, in a kind of, she was born and raised all over the place on the island, but my family largely grew up in poverty in Puerto Rico. Um, but my parents met out on the island and they got married. Um, they came back and had me. And so I was born in the Bronx. And at a very early age, my mom, who had just come here from the island when she was around 23 years old um, and had me kind of a, a little bit later in her 20s when she was about 26, she looked around and saw what the educational opportunities were like for children in the Bronx uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. And they were just not a just option for children. And it was really evident at a very early age that the zip code I was born in determined a lot of my opportunities in life. So my whole family, my whole extended family pitched in so that we could have a tiny house um, 30 minutes north of the Bronx. And I went to public school there while my whole family was in the Bronx, while my dad had a small business in the Bronx, while our whole real life was in the Bronx. And so, so much of my life was defined by that 30 minute commute between one zip code and another, between opportunity in one geographic area and the lack thereof in another. And from the time I was a small child, I knew that that wasn't right. I knew it was um, wrong that my cousins who were four or five years old that were just in a, a different zip code than I was, had different opportunities than I did. And so that shaped a lot of my thinking growing up. And when I eventually went to college, I studied economics, I studied international relations. I had worked in a Senate, uh, a Senate office. Mm -hmm. I worked in immigration affairs and I really looked at what was going on with our immigration system back then. I graduated, I moved back to the Bronx um, I worked with educational nonprofits to work with youth in the Bronx, in New York City, across the country. And, um, you know, when the recession hit, my father actually passed away right when the markets were crashing. And so this whole life that my parents had worked really hard to build was pretty much gone overnight. And how old was he? He was only 48 years old. And he had acquired a very rare form of cancer and uh, passed away. And so... My family, you know, my mom was back to cleaning houses and driving school buses, and I was back to waiting tables and bartending while doing my own community work. And, um, you know, I always grew up working, very working class, but it was definitely a situation where, um, where we had basically had to start from scratch. Right. And how old were you at this point? I was about, I was in my early 20s. Um, so I was the first in my mom's side, because my dad had passed away. So I was pretty much the first first-generation college graduate. And so you put all these hopes and dreams. You work so hard to get your kid to college when no one else in your family had gone before. And to have like almost all of those opportunities stripped at that time was very painful, not just for my family, but for families across the whole country. And I think that everyone kind of has their story of surviving the crisis, but ours was um, you know, 
given that it happened at the same time of this very dramatic loss, was very, very difficult on our family. We were on the brink of foreclosure. Um, Everyone was working two jobs. And that experience of working 18-hour days shoulder to shoulder with many other people that were in a similar situation. Uh, You know, people think of people who work in hospitality as like low skill Mm -hmm. or uneducated, but in my experience, many of the people working uh, were just intersectional. They cut across the board. They came from all sorts of backgrounds. Many of them have college education. Some of them may not have, but were extremely um, well-educated in their own right. And there is no, you know, when when people think of blue collar, they have this photo or, or mental picture in their mind, but it really cuts across all sorts of realities and all sorts of backgrounds. And um, so that was my life for a very long time. And eventually I kind of turned back to, I refocused on my organizing. I organized in the South Bronx for the Bernie Sanders campaign. And after the election, I went to Flint and I went to Standing Rock, met with community organizers there. I met with people all over the country, but I ended up at, at Standing Rock and when I saw exactly how corporations, particularly fossil fuel corporations, had essentially militarized themselves against American people, I realized that, um, you know, I had to do more. And it was right after I got off camp that a brand new Congress reached out to me and asked if I'd be willing to run in New York's 14th district. And when I did my homework and I looked at what was going on in our community, um, I felt like it was something that I had to do. And can you talk about how how did Brand New Congress even find you? And what is Brand New Congress? Yeah, so people Brand don't know. New Congress was an organiza- is an organization that was founded in 2016. It was actually founded before the general election because what they saw was basically no matter who won the presidency, we're not going to get anything done unless we have a progressive Congress that doesn't take corporate PAC money in the 2018 midterms. So with that kind of foresight, they started to basically field non-career politicians with a history of community service and organization um, in their own communities and tried to draft them to run for Congress in the 2018 primaries. So they started that effort about two years ago. And, um, and, they basically accepted, Brand New Congress accepted community nominations for this process. So um, my little brother nominated me during this process. And basically what they did is that they reviewed, they got like over 11,000 nominations. So they went through this whole process where nominations were reviewed and kind of kicked up and things like that. And they pretty much tried to match the incumbent, you know, how corrosive was this incumbent to our democracy and the role of money in politics, uh, the community, how connected is this community to that incumbent? Is there an opportunity for change? And um, and the nominee. And so kind of by mixing those three, three things together, does this nominee have a track record or does this nominee fit that community? Um, can we really make this a race? And it's really a grand experiment. And at the beginning of this whole thing, people were saying, oh, there's no way, or 
can you really generate that kind of energy and that kind of excitement around a midterm election right. as opposed to a presidential election? And really, I think at the beginning, no one had any answers. It was like, we don't know. We don't know if this is going to work. But if we don't try to change our democracy in 2018, then how are we, we going to have any hope for, for at least changing? So um, with that kind of spirit of experimentation, they went for it. And um, I've been kind of in that similar background myself. You know, I'm, I never thought that that elected office was for me or would even be possible mm-hmm. for me. I had worked with elected officials before, but... Which Senate? So I worked work for with? the late Senator Kennedy. Oh, wow. Um, and so working in that office, it was a really profound experience. Working with people in that office was really amazing, very conscientious, very just intelligent, compassionate, committed. But especially going back to the Bronx and knowing how machine dominated politics was, you know, I just really didn't think that the political culture of New York City would ever have me. And the way that I felt that I would have to change to fit that wasn't in line with right. my values. You thought you'd have to sell out or compromise? Or- yeah, yeah. And that's not to say that compromising is bad, but compromising your values right. is not something sure. that I just really felt that I could do. Right. And so that's why I always dismiss that opportunity or that idea out of hand. But with this whole confluence, I think, of the progressive movement, of electoral politics, of what I think Bernie proved in 2016, that no matter how you felt about him, he was the guy that proved that a small dollar campaign was at least possible. Um, I think that it was like, you know what, if we're going to give it a shot, let's just give it a shot. And had other people suggested to you that you run for uh, office Well, I think I've had friends before that was like, oh, you know, like you should run or things like that. But for me, it just felt like such, it just felt like so crazy. Um, And it also just felt out of line because I I had so closely identified running for office with, you have to take big money. Right. You have to work your way up this machine. You have to kind of pay deference to these party bosses. And that's what we've always been told for so long, that if you want to run for office, this is what you have to do unless you are individually wealthy. And so I don't, I think because I had interpreted running for office to be that, right. I always dismissed it out of hand. But now that I think we're kind of reimagining what that process could be like, um, you know, I hope that there are people out there maybe one day that are seeing how we're running this campaign and to at least see that it's possible, that at least maybe one or two or 50 people in the country are are breaking through. um, Because a lot of times people look at all of these losses of progressives and they're like, oh, the progressive movement isn't winning. But that's what movements are about. It takes a hundred people to try, to try to lift out one person. You know, a lot of it is an odds game. Right. And thousands, if not tens of thousands of candidates lose every single year. That doesn't mean that it's not worth running, especially right. in our community where we haven't had a primary in 14 years in New York 14. And when I first started this race, nobody thought it was going to be possible that a grassroots candidate would make it on the ballot. 
And we did. And no matter what happens on June 26th, I'm very confident about our odds. Um, I really am. Yeah. And when I first started, the idea of winning was like called the unthinkable, right. you know? But if there was the slightest chance, then I felt like it was worth it. Right. And now every day that this campaign goes by, that chance is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it is like, you know, overwhelming to even think about that possibility. But regardless of the outcome, the fact that we created the first primary election in 14 years in New York 14 is really, really important. And there are so many districts that are like that in this country where communities have not had an option in a generation. And that community itself has changed so much. A whole generation of people have come of age and have had no choice in who their official is. So I think that um, running in and of itself is a service. Mm -hmm. Running in and of itself can be a progressive act. And I think we need to reinterpret what success means a lot in how we run and the ways that we run. Um, and that there are multiple ways to succeed. There's the big win. There's the big decision on election day. But there are a ton of, of concessions that you get in that process. Right. Right. So, I mean, on a national level, we saw this with Sanders, right? Mm -hmm. So he didn't win, but he came much closer than anyone had thought. So that in itself shows us that progressive ideas are more viable than we would have thought, right? Absolutely. So things that we used to dismiss as a pipe dream or impossible, we now see are viable. Mm -hmm. um, and just the way that, you know, he went from 3% to whatever high percentage. And of course, if we, <laughs> the argument that people may lose, like you were saying, if that means that we can no longer try those things, there should be no Democrats running, right? Exactly, Based on how yeah. many seats we lost. They, yeah. We lost. <laughs> they lost. Um, and so before we talk more about the organizations that have endorsed you and the parties that you're running with, um, can you talk a little bit about your op opponent, the uh Yeah, the sure. Incumbent? So my opponent, uh, the current incumbent, is Joseph Crowley. He is considered to be a very powerful member of Congress, largely because of his fundraising. So uh, he's probably one of the most powerful members that most people have never heard of. And that's very dangerous. Intentional, very, yeah. very extremely intentional. He's trying to jockey to be the next Speaker of the House. He wants to take the seat after Pelosi. So he deserves a lot of public scrutiny and a very high public profile um, if he is going to try or want to lead this party. But he's actually trying to avoid that as much as possible, largely because of the fact that there's a lot of stuff under the hood in his career. Um, he commands a very, very questionable political machine. He has presided over a lot of ethics issues around corporate fundraising, around a lot of deregulation bills on foreign real estate investment, on Wall Street banks, etc. cetera. Um, and he accepts an epic, totally epic amount of money from private equity, private insurers, luxury real estate developers. Eight of his top 10 or seven of his top 10 donors are primarily Republican financers. And so what he does is that he takes all of this money, he bundles it, and he doles it out to other members of Congress to essentially purchase and coalesce his power within the House. Additionally, what he does is that in an astounding conflict of interest, he is both a congressman 
and the chairman of one of the most powerful Democratic parties in New York City. And so what he does is that he takes a lot of that national money and then he also translates that into very kind of high profit making policy decisions by appointing people on local levels, city council members, state assembly members that pass city and state laws um, that kind of promote real estate and Wall Street interests as well. And so it, it's done through this totally shady network of PACs, super PACs, LLCs, and so on. Um, and this guy's trying to be the third most powerful person in the United States of America, and no right. one knows about him. And so uh, there's a lot to be concerned about on a national level and on a local level um, for Bronx and, and Queens residents, for New York City residents who can barely afford to live and stay in their homes. Um, a lot of that is due to our politicians, and they want to try as hard as possible to avoid that line of question. It would be a total nightmare for a lot of folks at their town hall to have a constituent ask their New York City Council member, how much money are you taking from real estate developers? Right. I mean, that would be a total nightmare. And so it's the biggest hidden secret in New York City politics because we like to think of ourselves as a liberal city right. and as a liberal state, but in many, many ways, we are not. And my campaign is highlighting a lot of that, which is making almost the entire political machine, certainly the entire Queens political machine, very afraid of what we're talking about on our campaign and um, just very alarmed right. about the fact that we're calling attention to this. So that's another way that campaigns, like no matter what the outcome is, another way that they really can make um, progressive um, achieve progressive victories, right? By just exposing something that otherwise wouldn't be if there's no opposition. Also, you can potentially move people in a more progressive direction. I mean, we saw this a little again with Sanders and Clinton where he pushed her to, you know, endorse 15 an hour right, instead of $12 right. an hour. Um, and I didn't realize this, that Joe Crowley was like appointed. He's like a parody of an old school yes. connected politician, old boy network. Yeah, so when you look at, when people say, oh, there's no way she can win this race. I am, I go back three generations in the Bronx. I've worked in the Bronx and I really understand my community. And I understood that no matter how much money this dude had, if I didn't intimately know who my Congress member was, Nobody did. Right. And you're Nobody politically, did. fairly politically engaged yeah. and curious and informed person, exactly. right? So, yeah. Exactly. I knew that if I didn't know, that almost nobody knew. And so um, what I really kind of started to look at, it when I, when I started realizing, I was like, oh, this is strange. Our community is 70% people of color. And we've never had a person of color represent us in American history. And people say, oh, this is identity politics. It's not identity politics. It is almost statistically impossible. Right. That is a literal machination. And so I was like, okay, well, what happened? How, how, how did this happen? Was he elected? If he was elected, fine. We go up and we realize, oh, Joe Crowley was never elected to his seat. He was appointed by his mentor, who was the previous incumbent, Thomas Manton. And so Thomas Manton was both also the congressman and the chairman of the Queens Democratic Party. And what he did was, even for New York machine right. politicians, this was beyond the pale. It was shocking to so many people when Joseph Crowley was literally 
coronated 20 years ago. And he's been the congressman ever since. And that was 20 years ago. The Queens in the Bronx of 20 years ago is not the Queens in the Bronx of today. And it's a very different community. Um, it's always been a, ver a very diverse community, but it's only gotten more diverse. And we are a very working class community. And the last thing that this community needs is a representative that advocates for the interests of Wall Street. Right. It's the last thing, because the last thing that we need is a congressman that advocates for the people who profit off of those that live in our communities. It's the last thing that we need. And if it's, in fact, any community in the United States of America, it's a community that's 85% Democrat. It's a community that's 70% people of color. It's a community that's overwhelmingly working class. This seat deserves to be a leading progressive seat in the United States. And the fact that it's the opposite is totally unacceptable. Right. Um, by the way, full disclosure, I'm the product of a mixed marriage, Queensian and Bronxian. There you go. Bronxian okay. on my mom's side and Queens <laughs> on my dad's side. Um, what are the ways that you will be um, making a difference? And, and tell us about your, your platform and your policies. For sure. So we're running a very unapologetically progressive campaign. One of the things that I'm very proud of is that although when I first launched this campaign a year and a half ago, we started with what we kind of almost take for granted now is the stock progressive proposals, things like improved and expanded Medicare for all from day one, fight for 15, um, you know, and a tuition-free public college and so on. And running, of course, without any corporate PAC money. That's for us is the starting point. And so what I'm really proud about with our campaign is that we've actually advanced the national conversation and we've been credited with advancing the national conversation on really next generation policies. So we started there and we have since worked with progressive economists and with activists. And so I was one of the first candidates in the country to come out in favor of abolishing ICE. I was one of the first candidates in the country to come out in favor of a federal jobs guarantee and really explaining what that policy looks like and what it entails. And because of that, we've been able to kind of lead the pack and show that the progressive movement isn't done in 2016. We got more issues that we're pushing for in 2018, more issues that we're pushing for in 2020, and this train is not going to stop. And so the only way that we continue it is by advancing new ideas. And so I'm really, I'm really proud that the community behind our campaign has really been able to be a platform because we are running in the district that we're running in to take risks and come out in front um, and to kind of be that clarion call to the rest of the country saying, hey, this is what the future looks like. And we that's what I think this seat should really be about. And because I'm running where I'm running, Positions that would be very risky in other parts of the country are actually very safe right. in, in, in our part of the country. And so I think it's important that we do that kind of work as well. And um, you're also a DSA candidate yes. and a Justice Democrats candidate. Yes. Can you talk about those two sure, organizations? Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I pretty much would not be running unless it was for brand new Congress and Justice Democrats. Um, at the very beginning of those organizations, when they said, okay, we want to field working class people to run for office, you have to make that happen. Um, 
brand new Congress and Justice Democrats have slates that are majority female and um, either majority people of color or very overrepresented with people of color candidates. Mm -hmm. JD is kind of increasing their slate all the time. But um, last I checked, they were majority female, majority people of color. And in order to make that happen, kind of in contrary to the DNC, you have to make that happen. You have to really scout out people um, because a lot of those kinds of people like me say, I'm locked out of this process. I don't have money and I don't have the social connections to make that money. Things like that people talk about all the time when you go to any one of these candidate trainings held by many of these organizations, they're like, oh, call time. And it's like, who am I going to call? Half of my family has been incarcerated. (laughs) You know, like how am I supposed to ask friends? Like this whole idea of friends and family round is so privileged. And so um, for fundraising, is this or or just for volunteering, whatever? In general, you know, the first thing they talk about is for fundraising, even for social influence, for power mapping, things like that. It's just such a privileged kind of point of view. And so it is very discouraging to a lot of people of color, to a lot of people that come from working class backgrounds to run. And so uh, what Brand New Congress and Justice Democrats did at at their beginning was basically scout those candidates. And they said, if you're going to join us in this grand experiment, you know, it is a grand experiment for all of us but we're going to try to give you a digital fundraising platform. Right. And so that's how I, that's the only reason that I ran. By feeling like there was some kind of network, that there was some kind of um, organizational support, um, at least keeping an eye out on our campaigns. Mm-hmm. Justice Democrats uh, is, is somewhat similar to Brand New Congress in that but they are focused on the Democratic Party. Brand new Congress likes to call Recruitment. Post-partisan. Post-partisan, right. Yeah, um, because they will, so long as you identify pretty much as progressive right. and adopt progressive views, they don't care what party you're right. in. Justice Democrats is focusing on the Democratic Party, on trying to kind of change and command right. seats in the Democratic Party. Um, but same thing, no corporate PAC money, adopting progressive views and ideals. And so, uh, yeah, so basically with those two organizations together, trying to echo uh, and really give a platform to candidates that otherwise wouldn't have had them, um, that's how we got really candidates like myself, like Corey Bush, like Anthony Clark, like Chardo Richardson, like Paula Jean Swearingen, that some of them don't have their primaries yet, or some of them just wildly overperformed in their primary. Oh, you have like Paula Jean. Jean. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Paula Jean Swearingen, coal miner's daughter, yeah. running out in West Virginia. She raised $179,000 for a statewide Senate race. And she was outspent by $2 million bucks, And she got 30% of the vote yeah, that's in right. West Virginia. That is- Running against Manchin. Running against yeah. Joe Manchin. That is unthinkable. Right. right. Unthinkable. Again, she didn't win, but it's a real victory. And it does show once again that these things that people used to dismiss, whether it's someone running without as much money or someone running on real progressive ideals, you know, It's just starting. So, of course, you can only imagine how much more viable it will become. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, uh, we have DSA. Right. DSA. Democratic Socialists of America. Exactly. Uh, A group, an organization that is doing profoundly transformative work in 
in the in the realms basically of social, economic, and racial justice. Yeah. Um, in New York City, one of the really amazing things about DSA is that you see them everywhere. You know, they do the work. Yeah. And that's to me what attracts me so much to DSA because there are a lot of organizations that have really strong, you know, viewpoints sure. and values and ideals. But in terms of walking the walk, I feel like DSA is quite unparalleled in that respect. Right. And they do the work of centering marginalized people. They do the work of, of bringing conversations that would otherwise not be brought into the foray. And right. I think they're a very important part of getting elected. And you look at what happened in, in Pennsylvania, where you literally have three DSA-endorsed female candidates, and they just by themselves with their with their community organizing and their support just dismantled these multi-generational political machines in Pennsylvania it is it is totally shocking yeah. and amazing and they supported Jabari Brisport who didn't win but was a great candidate Absolutely. and yeah and I'm very proud of the work that New York DSA is doing because they're jumping they're unafraid to jump into that realm Jabari Brisport is another excellent example he ran for city council Third, ba- third party ballot lines only on Green Party right. and Socialist Party ballot lines. And he got 30% yeah. of the vote in a general election, which is amazing. And now they've endorsed me in this race for a, a congressional seat. So they're not afraid to like really swing for the right. fences with ambitious challenges that scare the heck out of the establishment. And they're going to keep going because they've also endorsed Julia Salazar, yep. who's running for state Senate out in Brooklyn. We're going to have her on the show. Which is like amazing. Yeah. And, um, and to have these candidates actually run, this is where ideas change. Right. And elections are conversations for the electorate. Elections are conversations for the community. And we need to be having these conversations everywhere. They need to be happening in activist circles. They need to be happening in the streets. And campaigns are a conversation. And for us to have that conversation with voters that would have never in their entire lives had that conversation with someone knocking at their door before, I think is transformative. It's transformative and it's important. Yeah, DSA. I mean, I I spoke on my on the Katie Helper show. We spoke to Erin uh, Neff, who's a DSA person, and she was telling us how the membership just spiked literally the night of Trump's win. Mm-hmm. You could like see the numbers going up and up. So one of the silver linings of the Trump election is that I think it made people more open to kind of a departures from capitalism. I mean, they realized the system wasn't working, isn't working, and they're now kind of openly embracing something called socialism, which was a bit unthinkable before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think part of it is also that the the right kind of wasted their their um, ammunition by calling Obama a socialist. If only, you know, don't get my hopes up. Um, but I think that kind of destigmatized the word because he was so popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, just going back to your proposal to abolish ICE, which again, I think is something that people would have thought of as totally um, unheard of as a as some from someone running for Congress. Um, it's interesting. I forgot until I heard you talking about this in another interview that that ICE is very recent. It's amazing how quickly we forget yeah. um, that the entire Department of Homeland Security did right. not exist until 2003. And 
when these bills were being passed, they were almost immediately seen as broad, systemic, and disturbing overreaches right. of government power. And violations of civil, civil liberties. Absolutely. And- absolutely. And this all just started in 2003. ICE was created in 2003 when the Patriot Act was right. passed, when the authorization for essentially unlimited military force was passed, when the Iraq War uh, was was basically triggered. And ICE was right there in that same packet of legislation, that same little authoritarian movement forward. And we have since denounced every single piece of that movement except for ICE. Mm. Has the Democratic Party, the establishment, um, opposed you, done things to kind of sabotage your campaign? Well, we're kind of in an interesting scenario because my opponent is the establishment Democratic Party. It's a little hard for him to call in the cavalry because he's so strong. And if we, if the DNC is really does mean they're red to blue type of stuff, which, you know, I think they do. I think they do really want to concentrate resources on red to blue. What red to blue? Can you just, sorry, like on basically flipping red districts to, to blue districts. Um, I'd say that, you know, he is the establishment. Right. And so Basically, what they, you know, the the machine tries to discredit me. The machine tries to say, you know, throw my own story at me. Or they'll they'll say behind closed doors, they say, oh, she's using a race card or, oh, she's using this or that. And for me, it's like to tell a candidate that's running in a district of color that's talking about race, that we're talking about a race card seems so obtuse. Also, the Democratic Party, that's the same party that framed every single thing or criticism that Sanders had of Hillary Clinton as a straight white man criticizing a woman. But all of a sudden, when it's people, when they like the straight white man and don't like the woman and a woman of color, it becomes the, you're playing the race card. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Was she playing the gender card? Yeah, yeah. And I I actually kind of tweeted about this this morning with Abdul El-Sayed's race out in Michigan. Oh, yeah. Because he's running a really transformative race. And one of his opponents, after making these ludicrous conspiracy theory-esque claims uh, that directly related to Abdul's uh, identity um, by Abdul essentially defending himself and saying, no, I'm a normal American and these claims are atrocious. They accuse him of playing the race card. And so really- whenever, They being the Democratic establishment well, or the- it, For them, he's now at the point, I believe it was a, a Republican that right. accused him of this, but he has resistance even within his own party, believing right. that a Muslim man shouldn't even right. run Like Keith Ellison, look what they did with Keith Ellison, where yeah. they- appointed Tom Perez. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that, you know, whenever you kind of have two candidates of different identities, no matter who the candidate is, someone is going to make that accusation um, in one direction or another. And it's kind of funny because it's irrespective of the privilege. It's not always the candidate that's the woman that says it. It's not always the candidate that's a person of color or whomever that says it. Um, But that always becomes a conversation when a lot of the times we're trying to talk about real issues. Um, And those issues, 
there's a difference between talking about the identity of a candidate and talking about the role of race in a community. Right. Because those are two very different things. And people sometimes forget that. So speaking of DNC intervention and uh, the establishment, of course, um, Tom Perez, after saying, so funny, he actually said that the primary was, was rigged. Then he had to walk it back. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, of course, he endorsed Governor Cuomo, as did um, Hillary Clinton. And I've heard you be critical of, of Cuomo. But do you feel like you're being racist and sexist, given that Cuomo has identified as a black woman? As a New Yorker, I am black. I am a woman seeking to control her health. Um, I mean, I guess we were all open to choose our identity. Yeah, I know, right. <laughs> he, he, he identifies but, that. But, I'm referring but, to a speech in which, yeah, yeah a very... Yeah not very well-received speech right. where, no, where totally. Cuomo pretended. And, yeah. and that's, that's the problem, too, is that the New York has a real problem. We have a real problem. I, I talked about this on The Intercept as well, that we just want to put on blinders mm-hmm. to, to these issues. New York, um, New York City is one of the most diverse cities in the United States. We're 56% people of color. We're majority female. Our governor, our mayor, our city council speaker, our state party chair, and the most powerful local party chair are all one gender and one race. And what I said— They play the race card. Yeah, and what I said before is that that is, like, statistically impossible. That is a system. That is systematic. And so the fact that— all of these people, the excuse that they give is, oh, we can stand in solidarity with these communities. That's not good enough. Right. These communities need to have a seat at the table. Right. And the idea that we hand all of the most powerful seats to one identity and then don't want to talk about that in the most diverse city, if, if not one of the most diverse cities in America, is a big problem. Because the things that we don't talk about are what actually kind of add the kindling to the fire. Mm -hmm. And by not talking about identity, by not talking about race, by not talking about class, by not talking about the corrosive role of money in politics, we are creating a problem. Right. Um, And didn't something just happen with making it harder to vote in working uh, working class uh, areas and and areas where there are people of color? I saw you tweet about that. Oh, yeah. So this is just a just a, a routine thing. New, the New York City Board of Elections admitted guilt and criminal negligence in how it conducts its elections. They purged over 250,000 voters from their voter rolls. They routinely swap out polling sites. You show up on election day on, at 6 a.m. and like people have jobs. They plan out when they're going right. to vote. And when they got to show up at 6 a.m. to vote before they get to work, to show up and the machines are broken because they haven't been tested, that is negligence. Right. Uh, to show up and you're not on a voter roll is negligence. To show up and the Queen's Board of Elections, which my opponent presides over, literally used Ancestry.com as their basis for purging voter rolls. And this is not a conspiracy theory. These are court documents that they have admitted to. And the media doesn't cover that at all. And and New York City elections are should be of profound concern to everybody. But what people don't realize is that our own board of elections is politicized. Politicians appoint the people who run our board of elections. That is wild. It's wild. And 
when you have basically people who are the chairman of state parties who have very vested interests in who gets elected and who doesn't, appointing who works on the board of elections. It's just not a system that's even like, even at the appearance, elections are serious enough that even any appearance of a conflict of interest should force a recusal. That's what happens at the Justice Department. Right. That's what happens in almost every other, every other proceeding that we see as sacred, especially our right to vote. Even at the appearance of a conflict of interest, people recuse themselves. Right. And the fact that our voting system doesn't have that same respect, I think is very problematic because you look at folks like the Black Institute in New York City, they have an entire report called Mississippi on the Hudson that Mm. shows that in New York City, poll site changes, poll site issues are profoundly concentrated in communities of color. They don't happen on the Upper East Side. They don't happen in Union Square. They happen in Corona. They happen in deep Brooklyn. They happen in the Bronx. And we can't ignore that and just think that New York State and think that voter suppression is a Southern problem. New York State was under uh, review by the Civil Rights Act by the federal government. New York State had the second lowest primary turnout in America in 2016, second only to Louisiana. We have a problem. And the fact that we don't want to admit our problems is another problem. Right. Well, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you and when is the election? Everything. Oh, my gosh. Please vote June 26th. Almost everyone in New York City is voting on June 26th. you got to vote on June 26th. You can find me on every platform, Ocasio 2018, O-C-A-S-I-O 2018, Ocasio2018.com, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Get involved, pick up a phone, knock a door, because we got to get elected. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Ocasio-Cortez, she's great. Full of life. Charming. Full of new blood. Full of new blood. Not one of these old ghouls. Not an old ghoul. Not that I'm ageist, but come on. No, but non-ghouls are healthier than ghouls. Yeah. I well, I just think it's that. crazy that it like, well, that's an ableist term, but I think it's a, uh, it's weird that we're okay with, um, you know, Supreme Court justices being super old and senators and Congress people being really old. I mean, there's no, you don't want an 84 year old to be serving you at McDonald's, but you're, we're okay with having... Really, with just being okay with really old people making policy right. for everyone else, for the rest right. of us, when they they might not even be able to use email. Right. They might still have their emails printed out for them. Yeah, they might write things with the feather quill. I want somebody who understands how Instagram and Twitter mm-hmm. works. Yeah. I feel like Ocasio can. She definitely does. She's yeah. got a great social media game, and in fact, um, and yeah, I mean, there's so much old blood, like. Feinstein, Pelosi, Tom Perez. Um. Dude, they just, I don't know if you've ever watched The Strain. It's this fun uh, Guillermo del Toro Mm -hmm. uh, directed um, series. But I just think about the ancients, which are like the old vampires that are too old to go out and hunt on their own. So they just stand in a circle and have uh, younger vampires bring them uh, humans to eat. Mm. And I just, yeah. So when I see like just old blood, I'm like, oh, get out of here. What are you ancients doing? Yeah, get back into The Strain. Yeah. And out of our political system. Just, yeah, go back to the go back to some cellar. He looks like um Skeletor, Tom Paris. 
Well, you know, There's striking resemblance. He's got a. He's got very defined chiseled. features. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll say they're chiseled. Yeah, very defined defined features. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's great because Alexandria Ocasio, you know, she says that behind closed doors, she people were saying that that she was playing the race card, and sure enough, there's a story at the Intercept about how Joe Crowley apparently said at some event that she was making this about race. Joe Crowley is her, you know, her opponent that she's challenging. And, um, you know, everyone hates identity politics unless it's their identity politics. Like, we on the Katie Halper Show, we have a real strict orthodox line. We like identity politics. We hate the weaponization of it and women and LGBTQ people, right? So Joe Crowley, for example, he he hates identity politics always because he doesn't like it because he's a straight white dude. Except he also likes to brag about his Irish heritage. So he wrote, actually wrote this piece like, why I'm proud to be Irish American. His, his shamrock tattoos on his biceps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Little ankle tattoo, another shamrock. Oh, my God. Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Halper Show. You can hear The Katie Halper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's WBAI.org, 99.5 FM. You can find The Katie Halper Show on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Facebook, on Twitter. You can find us on Patreon. The great thing about Patreon is that you get bonus content, you get extra interviews, you get extended interviews, you get a little behind the scenes. And to do that, you just go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. And we will see you next week. And we will see you live in person June 30th when we will be talking to none other than Thomas Frank. Saturday, June 30th at 7 p.m. at Caveat, which is in Manhattan. 21 Clinton Street.